I think this must be, I don't know, the eighth year, maybe seventh year that we've done a 10 by 9 event during um, around the time of Pride. And so um, we're thrilled. We have all kinds of stories tonight on the theme of out. Um, I think we might even have a story or two that isn't particularly LGBT, but um, yeah, most of them are a little bit gay. We have another fantastic story all the way from Glasgow. It's the wonderful Gita meeting. Thank you. Everyone's stories have been so moving and lovely. And this story is just about me being an idiot. So um, I apologize in advance. Um, and I'm ashamed to say that this story ends with me falling asleep in a crumpled pile on the rug in front of my whole family. I was newly married in my 20s and it's Christmas sometime in the early 2000s. And uh, it's our first year in our first ever grown up house, which is a Victorian house, a mirror image of the one I grew up in. And the furniture we'd moved from our tiny flat didn't even fill up a third of the moving van. Um, I'd fallen in love with the open fire in the front room and had completely ignored the orange shag pile carpet with gold taps and pine panelling in the bathroom, which were very 70s porn film, and the gloss painted woodwork everywhere, wood chip on every surface, including ceilings, and the ancient boiler, which needed kick-started every winter morning. But we finally had a dinner table big enough to fit the whole family round for Christmas dinner and enough space in the window for a big sparkly tree. So this was a big deal. I'd been studying my Nigella cookbooks for weeks and had planned a complicated cranberry stuffing and wrapped cocktail sausages in bacon rather than just buying them from M&S like a normal human. I'd matched the crackers to the dining room. In fact, I think we even painted it red, particularly for Christmas. And we borrowed enough folding chairs for my parents, my husband's folks and my two siblings. And we were good to go with my Christmas playlist and so many sparkly lights that we'd run out of plugs. Our Christmas morning service at church kicked off with bacon rolls and good coffee. And we hugged the friends who'd clearly had their Christmas morning breakfast Prosecco and were a bit more effusive than they normally would be. And lunch went fine. It all turned out okay. The turkey wasn't too dry. Nobody complained that the gravy was just bisto from a jar and everybody ate my fancy sausages. And after that, we waddled through to the living room with our coffee cups and our glasses in hand. And that is when the trouble began. Because my wee brother had brought me a bottle of rather lovely Laphroaig single malt for Christmas. And I had bought him a rather lovely bottle of Bruch Laddie single malt for Christmas. And we decided that the very best way to spend the afternoon was to work out which whiskey was the best. And so we got our glasses, we sat on the living room floor and we opened both bottles and began our tasting session. Now my wee brother was finding his way after a few failed attempts at college and was working in an office supply shop where he wore a lovely red polo shirt that said, ask me about print and copy on the back. And he and his pals made um, ramshackle skate parks in the warehouse for after hours. And I'm amazed that none of them got fired. He had a string of very pretty girlfriends that we tended to meet and he had a full on clubbing habit, um, which I sort of lived vicariously through because I was working full time as a junior doctor and I really had time to microwave a ready meal and that was about it. 
So, as the levels in both those whiskey bottles dropped and my levels of inebriation rose, I decided that the time was right, I'm so ashamed even telling you this, to support him in declaring his hidden gayness to the whole family. Now, he hadn't spoken to me about any such thing. This was a conclusion I had come to all by myself as his big sister, who clearly knew better than he did. And my reasoning for this assessment of his sexuality was the following. Four points. Number one, he dressed really well and he always smelled nice. Number two, at the time he sported a very on-trend faux hawk with bleached tips. Number three, he could be very sensitive and emotional. Number four, I hadn't met any of his girlfriends for a while. Now bear with me, I know better and I would do better now, but I was in the very early stages of escaping my fundamentalist homophobic church background for something close to affirming allyship. And I knew that I wanted to be a good supportive sister to him. And if he was as gay as I suspected, based on that impeccable reasoning, then he would need me in his corner. I suppose it was an admirable, though entirely wrong-headed aim. And it definitely wasn't admirably executed through a fog of Laphroaig peat fumes. Now, clearly my alcohol-soaked brain cells were telling me he shouldn't have to be hiding his true self any longer. And that meant that my very best course of action was to encourage him out of his closet in front of the whole family on Christmas Day. Now was the perfect moment. So slurring a little bit, um, I uncrossed my eyes and fixed him with my most compassionate gaze. And I declaimed, if you are gay, you just need to tell us. It would be awesome and I love you and everything will be fine. Stunned silence from my parents, from my in-laws, from both my siblings, and my shocked and horrified husband. No, seriously, I mean it. I love you, and if you love boys, then that's great. More silence. I was beginning to sense a certain awkwardness in the room, even through my whiskey blur. I do love you, you know. Just be real, I'm on your side. I think I'd imagine some kind of soap opera tears of relief from my closeted little brother as he was finally able to be honest with himself. But that didn't seem to be forthcoming. In fact, he levered himself unsteadily up on one arm on the coffee table and started laughing as though he'd never stop. I was completely bamboozled and also completely drunk. Opening his phone, he showed me a series of photos. I think it was a flip phone, it was that early. A series of photos of a gorgeous blonde wearing very little and pouting at the camera in a series of provocative poses, something a big sister really never needs to see. In the last image, she was holding a placard just below some very perky boobs that said, I love Paul Brown. So, it turns out that my impeccable reasoning for his gayness was somewhat off. 
It turns out it really was just that he liked nice clothes, expensive aftershave, had a friend who cut hair for a living. And the girl in the photo was actually the girlfriend of his best mate who was seeing him on the side. Completely deflated at the opportunity to demonstrate my newly awakened wokeness, I knocked back the last of my Lefroy and decided that the next best move was just to have an impromptu nap on the carpet. My last memory of that horrendous Christmas afternoon of attempting to forcibly out my straight brother was hearing my horrified mother-in-law stage whisper in shocked tones to my appalled husband, does she do this often? I like to think that my heart was in the right place and I'm going to blame my youth and that delicious Laphroaig. Thank you. I think your suspicions were probably based on stereotypes, but you know what? Sometimes those stereotypes are spot on. But in this case, you wide of the mark. Um, Gita, Fair. thanks so much. You are a doctor, I believe. I am, yeah. What a wonderful advert for the profession. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you and Podrig should get together and share a Laphroaig sometime. I would love that. Thank you so much. That was brilliant. What can I say? He's the wonderful Malky O'Doherty. And I'm about to lower the tone again, if nobody minds. Like once before, my life was in a rut. Then I had got out of it by hitchhiking to Amsterdam with a friend. Our first lift out of Lancaster had been with two girls in a dormobile. They were going to Amsterdam too. At the end of that holiday, I went home, packed in my job, and moved to England to live near the girl who had driven the van, Linda. Now at another time, with a similar feeling of not having a clear sense of direction, I thought I would try the same thing. It had worked once before, or I was reading too much Kerouac. I walked out onto the motorway slip road and hitchhiked to Amsterdam giving life or destiny or whatever, an opening. I'm ready, I was saying, hit me with it. That evening I drank and dosed with some friends in London. Next morning I took a bus to the Elephant and Castle and I was in Dover that evening in Zeebrugge at five in the morning and stamping my feet in the cold, hoping for a lift. It would be a long day. I got short lifts as far as Bruges. I couldn't get out of Bruges, so I took a train to Antwerp and felt like a twerp myself. I was in a bad location, but a wee blue Fiat car screeched to a halt and I ran after it, my rucksack bouncing on my shoulder, and I got in. There wasn't a lot of room in that car. You might have read the situation immediately. I didn't. Boxes and clothing and books. The driver moved stuff off the passenger seat to make room for me and give me a big friendly smile. Hans had shoulder length black hair, a wispy beard, and he wore a t-shirt and a pair of black briefs, which might have been swimming trunks. Bare hairy arms, bare hairy legs. He was fragrant in a herbal sort of way, and he was friendly in a reassuring way. Sometimes I got lifts from people who looked me over warily, and I wondered why they were taking a chance on me. Hans just seemed glad to have, my with, have me with him for company, for the long drive, two young people in the road, I told him how far I had come that day, what a relief it was to have a lift all the way now to Amsterdam. He told me that he worked for a film company further north in Groningen. 
He made blue movies, which is what we called porn in those days. I should come up in some time and watch. Sure, no problem. I was young, younger than 22 would be these days. And I wasn't totally clear in my mind that this man was gay and that he was being nice to me because he was hoping to have sex with me. Indeed, I still wonder if that is strictly true. I enjoyed his company. He enjoyed mine. We talked films and books and music. We hardly had any silences and they weren't a problem. We got on wonderfully together. He would have picked up very quickly that I was not gay, surely. He wasn't oppressive or invasive in any way at all, but his interest was clear. People aren't usually just that friendly at first meeting. And maybe I was learning some important lessons in what it is like to be the one who's being come on to. It was nice. I was flattered by his attention. He made me feel good about myself. And I started thinking, this is how it's done. This is the proper way to relate to someone you hope to win over, to delve deeper into. You make them comfortable. It was a lovely, bright spring afternoon, passing through the flat Dutch landscape on the motorway system, the road signs to Rotterdam and Utrecht, that lovely feeling of possibility and freedom. Hans was going beyond Amsterdam, but he offered to take me into the city. I suggested we score some dope and have a smoke together. It was getting dark. He pulled up in a street near Vondel Park and signaled to a fairly conspicuous dealer. And we now had what looked like a piece of Pakistani black. Why don't we drive out of town to a nice quiet place where we will have peace to enjoy this, said Hans. Then I will drive you back to your sleep-in and say goodnight. I trusted him. We cleared the city and parked in a little country road and rolled a joint. It wasn't good dope. There was an immediate hit that seemed to evaporate quickly. Hans explained, sometimes they cut this stuff with horse shit. We sat in the front of the car, trying to savor the night and what little effect the dope was having. And then we relaxed and were silent together, just gazing ahead of ourselves, me without a thought in my head. You know, he said, no, I would really like to go down on you. I was thinking it would be good to do something nice for Hans, but not that. I know you're not gay, he said, it's okay. But I thought for a while, maybe if I closed my eyes. I've come all this way to let something happen that would change my life. And this is what's happening. Who was I to be telling destiny or life to back off or give me something different? I could put my head back and let him do what he wanted, surely but he'd be entitled to a little reciprocation and that was not going to be possible. I don't bite, he said. It's not that I was afraid of him. We were connecting on an amicable level and there was no harm in him asking. And if it had all been reversed and I'd been driving and he'd been a nice woman who just suggested we could stone together up a country lane, I'd have been thinking that it was all going in the right direction, wouldn't I? So I didn't blame him but there wasn't even a twinge. And I knew what rejection feels like. The most disheartening words are, I like you, but not in that way. And can we not just be friends? I wondered if I could just let my head, let his head rest in my lap and run my fingers through his hair and imagine he was a woman. He smelt nice. And then I thought of his beard 
bristling against my inner thigh and I thought, no, I can't do it. I'm out. Oh, Maliki. Oh, the road not taken. The road not taken. <laughs> Thanks very much, everybody, for coming along and for telling a story and for listening to stories. And having your story heard is as important as telling a story. So um, listening is as important a part of the whole storytelling process as telling. So thank you very much, everybody, for all of that. We look forward to seeing you on the 26th of August um, at 7.30 for our Home From Home. And that will be a great evening. <laughs>